We'll be in Nehemiah 7. If you don't have a Bible, in your order of worship, you'll see the scripture printed so that you can follow along. I will not read the entire chapter, uh, but we will read through uh, most of it in different parts of it. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172, the sons of Sheptatiah, 372. Then over to verse 39, the priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973, down to verse 43. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmael, of the sons of Hodavah, 74, down to verse 46. The temple servants, the sons of Zihah, the sons of Hasaphah, the sons of Tabaoth, down to verse 57. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Parida, down to verse 61. The following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. Over to verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. And their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave the treasury 1,000 darics of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work. 20,000 darics of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 darks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. 
And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. In 1986, a five-year-old boy who lived in India was working on India's trains with his 14-year-old brother. They were sweepers on the trains. And late one night, they got to the train stop, and Saru stepped off. He was tired, and he sat in the train station and, and fell asleep, thinking that his brother would wake him up when they needed to get back on and, and move on. Well, he woke up, couldn't find his brother, thought he was on the train, and so he just walked onto the train, sat down, and fell asleep. His brother wasn't on the train. The train takes off. 14 hours later, he wakes up when the train stopped in Calcutta, India, one of the third largest city in India, notorious for its slums. This five-year-old boy for two weeks survived on the streets. Then he was taken in by an orphanage, and eventually he was adopted by an Australian family and lived for a good part, a good many years, in a little island, Tasmania, off the southern coast of Australia. But as he grew older, he got restless. And his desire to find home or to at least know where home was and where he came from, it started to grow inside of him. And so after 26 years, in 2012, with the help of Google Earth and some very vague memories, when he was four and five, he was able to locate his hometown and to go back and to meet his family again. There's a restlessness in every human heart. There is a keen sense that things aren't exactly right. There's a strong desire in every heart. Sometimes it's very suppressed, but there's a strong desire to know where we have come from and where we are going. Our hearts long for rest. The question is, where does that rest come from? That's what Nehemiah 7 is all about. Where does the rest come from? First, it comes from a renewed security in Christ. As we begin chapter 7, the walls have finally been finished. This long two-month project to finish the walls is done, and now Nehemiah begins to secure the city. We see in verse 1, he sets up the gatekeepers. Verse 2, he appoints two administrators. One is his brother Hanani, who was the original brother that sent word to Nehemiah that Jerusalem was in trouble. And then a man by the name of Hananiah, a God-fearing man, he orders the gates to open in the morning, close at night, so that there's protection and security in this city. He appoints guards to serve at posts and in front of their homes. And then you get this description of Jerusalem in verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. 150 years earlier, is when the king of Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the homes. It was a city that was 
decimated, brought to the ground. And then most of the inhabitants, most of the Jews, were taken into exile in Babylon. They started to return in, a, in, in waves. The earliest group that returned, returned 100 years before the wall was finished here in Nehemiah 7. That's a lot of generations. When they returned, what they found was a city that was destroyed. They had lost their identity. They had no security whatsoever. And what's striking is that from that first wave, a hundred years later, there's still no security. It still had not been rebuilt. They couldn't rebuild it themselves. 100 years worth of generations, they still had broken down houses that hadn't been rebuilt. The place is still in shambles. They could not make themselves secure. They needed someone, which is the evidence of the 100 years and nothing had happened, really of substance. They needed someone to come lead them to a place of security. Enter Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the one that comes and rebuilds the wall and leads them to a place of security so that they could dwell secure. Now, what is security? We use that word a lot. We say he's insecure, right? Or she's insecure. What do we mean when we say that? Well, security is simply the freedom from dangers and threats that produce fear and anxiety. That's a simple definition of security. Freedom from dangers and threats that produce fear and anxiety. Now, what can threaten your life? I'll give you a few examples. What can you be threatened by? Sickness, the dreaded diagnosis of cancer, or a diagnosis of some deadly disease, that's a threat. The threat of death, car crash, plane crash, a mass shooting, death is a threat. Threat of rejection, loss of friends, exclusion from a social group, breaking up with the person you thought you would marry, or being broken up with. Right? Rejection is a threat. Failure. Failing classes. Not keeping your grades up to keep a scholarship. Getting benched. Not getting a promotion at work. Being fired from work. Failure is a threat. Lack of provision for your family, college, wedding, retirement. Right? Just Lack of provision can be a threat. And all of these threats produce fear. They produce anxiety. They produce insecurity. Fear of death, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of provision or lack of provision. And here's the truth. You and I are no different than God's people who were in Jerusalem in the city that was broken down for 100 years. They could not make themselves secure. They could not get rid of the threats. They needed someone to come lead them to a place of security. 
someone to come take away the threats from them. And that's what Nehemiah did. He led them to a place of security. If you try to create security for yourself, the irony is that it will produce more fear, more anxiety, and more insecurity. So how's that work? Let me run it through the examples I gave you. If you try to remove the threat of sickness by engaging the all-knowing, all-powerful entity of Google, that lump on your body that is actually harmless, will you be told by Google that it's, it's cancer? Or that cough you have that is actually harmless could actually become the beginning of a deadly disease that's gonna kill you. When you try to remove the threat, it actually produces more fear and anxiety, more insecurity, or take the, the, the removal of the threat of death by never flying on a plane, or by never going to a place where a bunch of people are gathered because that could, that could be a mass shooting. You will eventually lock your doors, stay in your house, become paranoid, and be struck with fear and anxiety and more insecurity. Or if you try to remove the threat of rejection by becoming all things to all people, you're gonna become a chameleon, right? So that everybody likes you and approves of you. Do you understand the amount of insecurity and fear and anxiety that breeds? wondering if you'll ever be found out for being a fraud? Or if you try to remove the threat of failure by studying for inordinate, inordinate amounts of time or by working super long hours at work, all it does is increase the insecurity and the fear and the anxiety. Or if you try to remove the threat of lack of provision by saving and investing in the stock market or in real estate, you are scared to death about a market crash. You're scared to death about a real estate crash. The point is, when you try to create security for yourself, it only results in more insecurity and more fear and more anxiety. Someone has to free you from those dangers and threats. You can't do it yourself, and the only person that can do that is Jesus Christ. He is the only person person that can remove the threats that breathe the insecurity in your heart. Hebrews 13, five to six, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How do you know that God won't forsake you? How do you know that he won't leave you? Because he spent a lot to purchase you. He has invested a lot. The price of his son's blood to bring you to a place where you can dwell secure. You've heard the phrase, have skin in the game. You know how we use that? If, if you don't have skin in the game, 
you won't own something, you won't follow through, you gotta have skin in the game. God has a lot of skin in the game. He won't forsake you because he already forsook his son in your place. He won't leave you because he already left, turned his back on his son on the cross. Jesus Christ is your only hope for security. But that promise is not automatic. You gain that promise of security, you gain that place of security only when you transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus Christ. So where does your heart find rest? First, in renewed security in Christ. Second, in renewed identity in Christ. Look at verse five. Nehemiah says, "'Then my God put it into my heart "'to assemble the nobles and the officials "'and the people to be enrolled by genealogy.'" Verse six, these were the people of the province or the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. Now, what's Nehemiah doing here? Well, he's repopulating the city. He's calling these exiles back into the city, right, to a place where they can dwell secure. And so he starts in verse seven to read the names off the genealogy, those who belong. Then we get to verse 61. Look at verse 61. We read that some people could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And then verse 64, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded now, just to understand, what, that, what does that mean for today? In the Old Testament, God was growing his family primarily through the nation of Israel, primarily through physical descent, though people were added to his family, like Rahab the prostitute, other examples of that. By the time we get to the New Testament, after Jesus' death and resurrection, God's family right, is growing among the nations, not just one nation, but the nations. And it grows through spiritual descent, Primarily those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and now belong to the family. So we read in Revelation 21, right, about the new Jerusalem, which is the new Israel, the church, right, coming down out of heaven. And who belongs to it are those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. That means those who are in Christ belong. This genealogy here that Nehemiah reads is all about belonging. It's about identity. That Nehemiah is restoring the identity of his people. He's restoring their belonging, right? They're no longer exiles. They're not defined as exiles. He's giving them a restored, renewed identity as the people of God in this place where the temple and the walls have been built. They're no longer defined as exiles, so what are they defined by? What are they defined by? One of the striking features of this genealogy in Nehemiah and what he reads is what we see in verses 39 to 56. Look at the groups of people in those verses. He lists the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. These were the people that operated the temple 
And the temple is where God dwelled. The temple was at the center. The temple was the means by which a sinful people could worship and commune with a holy God. And the temple was at the center. In other words, Nehemiah right, is concerned that as he restores the people's identity, that their identity is restored around worship. Identity flows out of worship. Worship creates your identity. Or another way to say it is, you become what you worship. And every person here worships something. We are born into this world worshiping. That is just a simple way of saying, we are trying to find our worth as a human being in something or someone. We all worship. And our identity is defined by what we worship. In the book of Romans, the word for image in the book of Romans appears twice. Once in Romans 1 and once in Romans 8. Romans 1 says that if you worship something or someone in this created world, and not God, that you will be molded into the distorted image of the creation. And then Romans 8 says, but if you worship God, you will be molded into the image of your creator. You'll be molded into the image of Christ. So if you worship idols, anything but God or Christ, you become like that idol. And the definition of an idol is it's dead. There's no life in it. And so when we worship things outside of Christ and God, we actually become less human. We become less alive. When we worship Christ and we trust Christ and worship God, we become more human. We become more alive. And how does this work? Let me give you a few examples. If you worship sexual pleasure, you will become less human in the treatment of the object of your worship. In other words, you will treat that person less as a human and more as an object. They will become depersonalized and you will become depersonalized. You become less human and more object as you worship. Why? Because that is a, it's an idol and an idol is dead. There's no life in it. You become what you worship. Another example. If you worship your job or you worship your career, you will become less human in your treatment of your coworkers or your treatment of your employees. They will become commodities. They will become objects that are simply there for trade and use right, to, to, to meet your desires. But as you do that, they become less personal. They're depersonalized, and you are in the process. You become less human. You become what you worship. Had a friend, I talked to him this past week. He's in a corporate culture where it's, it's a depersonalized culture. The people in this culture are, everyone's a commodity, a simple commodity. Uh, and and, and the, the, the worship or the idolatry of career, everybody's 
uh, worshiping their careers. And so what happens is everybody in that environment becomes a commodity and suddenly everybody is becoming less human and more object. Why? Because you become what you worship. You will be shaped into what you worship. Can I give you a pretty transparent example of this? In my marriage, my wife and I are doing just fine, okay? We're good. But you know in marriage, what makes it good? What makes good is that you've had good reconciliation because conflict is a given in marriage. And I will tell you that recently, our marriage got to a place where it was very transactional. Very transactional. For various reasons, lots of stress in our lives. I was emotionally disengaging from Kim. And I was emotionally disengaging from myself. Okay, now all men struggle with that. Uh, but this was above the baseline struggle. Okay, this was over the top. And the result was our marriage became less relational and more transactional. Less human, less relational, more transactional. Why? My idolatry, my idolatry was stealing my humanity. My idolatry was stealing my humanity and our marriage was losing life because of it. Why? I was becoming what I was worshiping. If you worship anything outside of Christ or God, you will become less human because idols by definition are dead. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller says this, finally, there is the trend of what sociologists call commodification, which is defined as ascribing monetary value and applying cost-benefit analysis to such things as relationships, family, and civic engagement. The values of the market inexorably intrude on all of life. For example, accidents and tragedies were once dealt with through community support and spiritual disciplines. But now in the age of litigation, mental distress must be assigned some kind of objective financial value. So pain gets a number. Then in court, the number is argued over. How great was the litigant's pain and suffering? How much money will it take to deal with it? That's what idolatry produces. You become what you worship. Now you say, what does this have to do with your heart finding rest? When you worship something or someone other than Christ or other than God, you are worshiping a God replacement, which means that you are acting unnaturally towards your creator. And as you act unnaturally towards your creator, you are going to increasingly see unnatural characteristics in your life. I'll give you a tangible example of this. If you worship the approval of people, meaning that you find your worth in everyone liking you, if you worship the approval of people, then you will constantly be changing your identity. You'll be constantly changing who you are. 
right? To match the environment, the person, whatever they want so that they can affirm you. And that becomes increasingly unnatural. You're not comfortable in your own skin because you're trying to change your identity in the, in the situation, in the environment so that people will approve of you. So you become uncomfortable in your own skin. It becomes unnatural. Your heart is restless and you're full of fear and anxiety because you wonder, when is somebody gonna find me out? When am I gonna be found out? There's a restlessness that develops. You worship Christ. You trust Christ. His identity becomes yours. And you rest in that. Your heart will find rest. So hearts find rest in security in Christ. Hearts find rest in identity in Christ. And finally, your heart will find rest in renewed generosity in Christ. Look at verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360. That's a lot of people. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. Now look at verse 70. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 darics of gold, and some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 darics of gold. Now, Nehemiah is speaking of himself in third person here. He's the governor. He gave 1,000 darics of gold towards this work. All the rest of the heads of houses gave 20,000 darics. Now, let me just do some simple math, conservative math. Assume that heads of houses, assume that houses are five, husband, wife, three children, okay? Assume that only 20% of those heads of houses actually give. That's pretty consistent. 20% of the people typically do 80% of the work, okay? So we'll go with 20%. That lands you at about 1,700, 1,700 heads of houses. They gave 20,000 darics. That's an average of 12 darics per head of household compared to a 1,000 being given by Nehemiah. The point, however you want to slice it, is that Nehemiah led in generosity and the people followed his generosity. And that's how the gospel works. Jesus Christ leads in generosity. He didn't give money to the work of building his kingdom. He gave his very life to the building of the kingdom, which is you being drawn back into a place of security, into a place where you can dwell secure. He was rich. He became poor. You know, we talk about generosity oftentimes as an action. We talk about it as something you do. You know, generosity is less about action and more about identity. It's less about what you do. It's more about who you are. Generosity is about who you are. As I've already said, when you worship something or someone other than Christ, you become less human, more object. You know what else happens? You become more consumer. Where everything around you, all the created things in this world become objects through which you can satisfy your desires. You become more of a consumer. But when, when Jesus Christ meets all of your needs 
then you become, because now your identity is grounded in him and your needs are met by him, you become a giver, not a taker. You become generous, not a consumer. That's how the gospel works. Bruce Waltke, he says it this way. The very definition of righteous people, and he's using language here from the Psalms. The Psalms talk about the righteous and the wicked. All that means is righteous are those that have faith in God or faith in Christ. The wicked are those that just don't trust God, don't trust Christ, okay? The very definition of righteous people, those who worship Christ, is that they disadvantage themselves to advantage others, while the wicked or those who don't know Christ are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The only way that you're empowered or enabled to disadvantage yourself is if you have received the advantages of Christ. If you've received the security that Christ brings, removing all the threats that would make you insecure, if you've received this new identity from Christ that is founded in him, that's the only way you'll disadvantage yourself and be renewed in your generosity. Country music icon, Merle Haggard. I'm dating myself there. He died a few years ago. Now, all of you that are into the new country, I don't have a dog in the fight. I really don't care about country music, but I know there's old country and new country. Merle Haggard, old country, but very successful. So if you don't know what it is, he was very successful. Listen to this. 38 of his albums appear on Billboard's country music top 10 charts. More than a dozen made it to number one. He also had 38 number one singles. Very, very, very successful man. He also had five wives and he spent time in San Quentin prison. Listen to what he said. There is a restlessness in my soul that I've never conquered. Not with motion, marriages, or meaning. It's still there to a degree, and it will be till the day I die. One of the early church fathers spoke towards this restlessness. His name was St. Augustine. He lived in the fourth and fifth centuries. He was a bishop. He was a pastor. He was converted to Christianity at age 32. And by that, I mean he transferred his trust from himself to Christ. Listen to what he said. Because you, speaking of God, because you have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who have strayed. We are a people who are deeply insecure. We are a people who have a keen sense that that things are not right. We are a people who have a strong desire to know where we came from and where we're going. And we are a people who have spent a lifetime trying to answer those questions in the things that our eyes can see in this created world.
And yet, Father, you came into this world, you put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. You lived a perfect life that we could not live. You died a death on the cross in our place to take away our sin so that we could dwell secure with you. And Jesus, we confess this morning with our whole hearts that only you can remove the threats in our lives that breed insecurity, that security is found in you alone, that you will never leave us or forsake us. And Father, we are people made to worship. And we confess that we have worshiped all kinds of idols. And we confess that we have watched our lives become less alive and less human and depersonalized because of it. We repent, we, re we turn to you, Jesus. Would you be our security? Would you be our identity? And as you renew our identity, would become a generous people that our very lives would be marked with generosity. Our time, our, our money, our, our talents, our giftedness, that we would exist to advantage others around us. Only through Christ, you dwelling in us. Father, as we close in worship now, would you, by your Holy Spirit, convince us that our worth is found in you, Jesus, and you alone. We pray this all in your name. Amen.